Well then, that was <laughs> insane. Welcome to a quick take hot take episode of the Total Soccer Show recorded uh, not too long after the final whistle or I guess premature final whistle. We'll talk about that uh, was blown in the USA's uh, tres a cero victory over Mexico in the semifinals of the CONCACAF Nations League. David Goss uh, joining me this evening or this morning, I guess, to discuss <laughs> this game. Opening question. What the hell just happened? Like, everything about it, starting with the news, I didn't even mention it, Greg Berhalter, uh, the news broke, very likely, slash definitely going to be the the head coach of the USMNT, uh, that should be made official, I believe the reporting is tomorrow, and yet, that is somehow not the craziest part <laughs> of this evening. We had four red cards, we had three goals for the United States, we had a very poor performance from Mexico, maybe the worst I can remember. I don't really know what to make of this, so I'm going to throw to you to try to sort out a little bit of it. So, um, about five minutes before the game kicked <laughs> off, my wife fell asleep on the couch, mm-hmm. and I got up when the game was over, and she woke up and said, what happened? And I said, <laughs> the US won 3-0, and she said, good. And I said, there were four red cards. And she goes, that's wild. And I said, and the US rehired Greg Berhalter. <laughs> she goes, during the game? And I was like... <laughs> This is the craziest region in the world. It's ridiculous. I love it. I don't love everything that happened tonight. Yeah, for sure. In multiple different ways, and in we'll probably get into a decent amount of it. Um, but I haven't had it in a little bit, right? World Cup qualifying was such a long time ago. The World Cup is different. Right? Yeah, dude, totally. Like, I feel good right now, and not just because the U.S. dominated Mexico, because this is the game. This is how I grew up in the game. Yep. And I love these moments. Man, I'm totally with you. I have not been particularly enthusiastic about the U.S. after the World Cup. It's hard to get up for the January camp. It's hard to get up for some of the friendlies and the very meaningless friendly against Mexico. And this game, even before I saw the Berhalter news, I was already kind of getting up for it. And then you just see the scrappiness. You see the U.S. going at Mexico. And it was... I was just so excited. I was really pumped to get to talk to you uh, this evening about the game. Uh, earlier today, I'm not going to lie, I was like, cool boy, is it going to be late? I, yeah. hope, I hope this isn't like a, a two-to-one loss for the United States and we're trying to be optimistic at 1230 uh, in the morning. But no, instead, man, it was just it was just fun. Although there were moments, I think you already alluded to, uh, when the United States goes down two players because two of those four red cards were to Americans. We'll talk about whether or not they should have been red cards, the McKinney one especially. Uh, but that is the sort of blemish on an otherwise pretty perfect performance. Uh, maybe Balogun would disagree a little bit, but uh, Christian Pulisic getting a brace. Ricardo Pepe reminding us all that he could be a, a number nine option for the U.S. And let's actually start, yeah, let's start with the lineup for a moment. Because Joe and I had speculated that we would see the U.S. in more of a double pivot of uh, Musa and McKinney. Uh Pretty much everything else was kind of to plan. Matt Turner in goal, Jedi Robinson and Dest uh, as your fullbacks. Chris Richards and Miles Robinson, a little bit of a surprise there. I think we had some different combinations. But I don't think it was a double pivot. I saw it as being Musa, for most part, being the deepest, and then McKinney a little bit further ahead, and then Gio Reyna centrally a little bit further ahead of that, both of them on either side of him. But it did seem to me like Eunice Musa was the single pivot, uh, Falon Balogun starting as your number nine, and then Tim Way on the right, Christian Pulisic on the left. Did you see the Musa positioning the way I did, or did you see it as more of a double pivot? I saw it more as a double pivot. Okay. I actually felt in the first... 25 minutes there was obviously there's different phases of play but on the build out 
there was actually a ton of moments where it was three across. Yeah. Reina on the left, Musa in the middle, and Weston McKinney towards the right, or Musa and McKinney swapping those areas, um, which I actually thought really hurt the U.S. because I think you took especially Weston McKinney, but also Reina out of what they do best, higher mm-hmm. up the field, which is be on the half turn or be the one making runs past the back line, sw- swapping moments with wingers. I think that's where they can be dangerous more. I also don't love having players, those players deeper because they make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, like and we did see that. There was a good couple minutes there in the first like 20 minutes or so yes. when the United States just looked a little bit sloppy uh, trying to build out of the back. And then there was a few times when the U.S. tried to gamble on their own defensive abilities and lost those 50-50s. And those were maybe the only kind of sustained moments of pressure and attack from Mexico, at least in the first half, but maybe in the whole game. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm with you then that I think some of that build out just needs to sharpen up. The the chance that ends up being offside in the second half for Mexico, again, the U.S. building out from Matt Turner to Musa. Musa doesn't step to the ball, loses it. Mexico are away. Nothing comes of it because of the offside and a save from Matt Turner and then a deflection from Miles Robinson. Again, chaos all around. So I'm with you that I think that wasn't always ideal for the United States keeping possession. But the reason we do the quick take hot take is to kind of talk out first impressions uh, and then uh, I'll go back and have a look and see. So I think Eunice Moose's positioning will be one I pay attention to because it did feel to me like when they were in possession in Mexico's half, that was where I felt like he was kind of staying the deepest. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when the United States was then trying to apply pressure, which they did, and I thought they did pretty effectively when Mexico tried to build out, there was really good uh, sort of awareness of when to press. I think Balogun especially was was good at sort of chasing things down. Tim Weah, the same. But I noticed in the midfield, you would sometimes see Yunus Musa stepping out to, to sit on one of the central midfielders from Mexico who was staying a little bit deeper. And Weston McKinney would then slide over and cover, which is kind of what you want in that double pivot when you're defending. Uh, and then vice versa. Sometimes it was McKinney stepping out. So I thought that relationship was really solid on on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think... What we sort of talked about coming into this game, which happened at a level that I didn't even anticipate, was how much of the ball the U.S. had. Right? Right. Yeah. I I thought this was going to be another sort of like cagey affair. I wasn't ready for the United States to be fully dominant in a number (laughs) of different categories. And and so part of that's Diego Coca. He plays a a back five. He plays three across the middle. He he started Roca, who's was his guy at Atlas that Tata refused to call up and is a deeper lying midfielder and Alvarez as well. And then I, so part of that was Coca. Part of that was talent. This is a bad Mexico team. Yep. And this isn't the C team. Like Chucky Lozano's not here. That's a huge loss. Mm-hmm. Tecatito sat out the entire year with an injury. Raul Jimenez hasn't been himself mm-hmm. in years. Yep. And so while this is a bad Mexico team, this is Mexico's reality. Mm -hmm. So it's not meaningless to the U.S. that they were able to do this and this is what they look like against this team. And so all of that combined ended up being that the U.S. had the most of the ball. And it made sense to have those three in midfield and to have Reyna on the field on top of Pulisic, on top of Waya and your center forward in this game. And we'll... Maybe talk about Canada in a moment or at the end, but mm-hmm. I think that's a different game. But in this game, like it worked out perfect because mm-hmm. of the gameplay, and it worked out in a situation where the rotation of those three, and we saw a couple times Reyna drop in deeper, 
Weston rotate higher, Musa take a step higher. We saw Weah come inside and Dest take space down the right side, or the reverse, where Dest sort of read the rotations. McKenney went out wide right, Dest came inside, Weah gave some verticality. There was a lot of those options because the U.S. had the ability to knock it around and start to try and build the chess pieces in front of them. And that hasn't really been something we've almost ever been able to say in a U.S.-Mexico game. Uh, and so it worked out perfectly, but it worked out perfectly because this is the new reality, mm-hmm. which is the U.S. sits at a level that Mexico can't reach in terms of talent, in terms of quality on the field. We're going to have to do at least one episode, maybe several episodes, about how things got to this point because that does se- seem to be from every uh, expert or person who is particularly knowledgeable when it comes to Liga Mekis or the Mexican national team. There does seem to be a sentiment of this is how bad the situation has gotten. They have let it get to this position by not taking decisive action, by not changing the way they operate, and so here we are. But it, it's just such an odd thing to for you to say that, and yet I totally agree. And, and I never feel really comfortable saying the U.S. is the dominant force in that rival. But man, on the balance of this evening and on recent results against Mexico, it's tough to argue otherwise. And they looked sharper. They looked up for it. I think uh, Doyle was tweeting about how the U.S. kind of has to not rise to the bait. And I do think that is maybe the only significant knock for me. I think Weston McKinney is pretty hard done by with that red card. He's having his jersey pulled. I think it's Sanchez kind of pulls him in and then does a not a full headbutt, but he's, enough that he's like hunting if, the he's face hunting. Yes. to face. Yes. yes. He's 100%. hunting it so badly that mm-hmm. it's like that's a red card itself, just it for like be. the pathetic nature of yeah. the action. And and if uh, McKinney had leaned in at all. You know Sanchez goes down holding his face as though he's just been shot. Instead, McKinney like, kind of grabs him by the neck and the collar and throws him out of the way, and I think that's where the red card occurs. But right there, it is instigation. I don't really begrudge Weston McKinney because he had like five players putting hands on him. And but still, that is a like scrum moment where you've got to try to keep yourself in check because that's Mexico just completely melting down. You don't want to melt down with him. I totally agree, and you have a final coming up after this. Like You have to be smarter but at the same time yep yep it's it's a confusing thing it's like yeah but at this the is same a time, really you. young team yeah weston is one of the leaders mm-hmm. and cesar montes just tried to take a chunk out of your yep. center forward yep your new recruit the guy the new guy in the locker room your friend and like and the reason it all starts is because mckinney comes up and pushes him which i yeah. do think We'll see what the report is coming out. That may be the red card itself. Yeah, you could be right. Because it, he comes with a bunch of force. He comes from behind. He shoves him. I, either way, you understand that moment from him. Like, it's what you yeah. would have expected Carlos Bocanegra to have done. Or Eddie Pope. Or Pablo Mastrini. Like, all of these guys in the past, this is what you'd expect in a U.S.-Mexico game when someone treats your teammate that way. And so I thought it was poorly refereed. I thought the yeah. moment even earlier where Antuna and Reyna... Yeah. And Tuna sitting on a yellow card. He was scared to give a red card. It was clearly a yellow. Christina Uncle tried so hard to to get out of it. To explain that down a little bit. But I think the the truth was in the middle of it when she said, probably a yellow if he weren't already on a yellow. Right. Not that that should influence the decision, but there is enough there to have not given the yellow. It was just a very, like, you know that you just backed yourself into a corner. Because, yeah, absolutely. And I think. I loved Reina's response to that, getting up. And, and first, he gives a big <laughs> thumbs up to the ref and says, hey, ref, good call, good call. And then he walks over to the fourth official and does the kind of like, okay, here we go. And sure enough, he definitely has like a perfect amount of a physical leg sweep later on, uh, Reina does, that like it's just underneath a yellow card. And I loved that well, little bit but, of pettiness. 
But he drew the foul a few moments True. later True. and then pumped the crowd that's up, which, right, one, dude. you know the crowd's not on your side. So that's nah. a control move by itself, oh, yeah. um, which yeah. I'm pretty sure Pulisic got a talking to for, oh, yeah. for kicking a ball is what I think I, they said. Uh, I thought it was literally just we saw this. T- I thought the ref literally said, don't troll the fans. That's what uh, that's, it felt like. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought it was, too. And then he gets booked for, I guess, taking too long to hand over yes. the captain's armband. So, no, there was definitely some weirdly inconsistent approaches to the officiating. That aside, you've kind of already swayed me on the McKinney red card. Uh, and because I, I think you're totally right. And even him getting the red card and being suspended, I, I think there is, especially in CONCACAF games, but especially in competitive games against Mexico, I get being like, man, you're, if, if you kick us, we will kick you back. We are not backing down from these challenges. I think the one that I'm more frustrated with is Serginho Dest yeah. because that is one where they are just trying to, to bother you. The, the deliberate shoulder bump, all that's trying to do is get you to retaliate, and he does exactly that. And I don't think it was, in my opinion, even enough to get a red card. He sort of like shoves the ball into the guy. I forget who it was. It's, uh, it's, the problem is he hits Arteaga in the face. Like his exactly. hands are above the neck. Does he? Okay, because so, I, I, yeah, I only remember him like hitting the ball into him. Does it like go up into the face? He hits because it's, um, it's half Edson Alvarez, and then Arteaga shoves him from behind, yeah. which I think could have been a red card itself. Yep. Yeah. And then I think it's after that where he hits him, where I, my Canadian friends were texting me, like, I want nine red cards right after <laughs> yeah, the course, first set of, of red cards. And the moment that happened, I, saw, I only saw it on replay. Mm-hmm. I said, uh-oh, because it, just, it was an obvious moment for a VAR to find mm-hmm. and say, this guy put his hand. Like, yeah. one, clearly, coming out of the Weston McKinney moment, this ref's looking for a reason to keep things even. Exactly. So he's going to show a red card because he feels like he has to. But he was going to try and show two if he can, and it gave an obvious reason. And as you said, it was winding up. It's also one of those moments where, like, 10v10, you're up mm-hmm. 3-0. There probably should have been a conversation of, like, one, let's stay away from the sidelines. Like, don't go over yeah. there and hang out if you don't yeah. have to. Yeah. Like, understand the dynamic of what's going on just, like, from your own safety point of view, which is unfortunate that any of this even has to be said. Um, and then understand the moment. Like, we have a final in three days. They don't. So, like, mm-hmm. you should – that. that's the part where you wish there, that understanding yeah. is there and – Sergino just has a style about him, which yep. when you're losing is always going to be the first guy you go after because of the footwork, because of the creativity. He creates the third goal because of that. But it's kind of always going to be one of those things. And you knew it was coming somewhere. Yeah, you once, did. Once it's evolved to 10-10. And I think you uh, – I agree with everything you said. A, a key thing in there for me, though, is is the VAR, VAR momentness of that decision that as soon as – there is even a marginal hands to the face. We saw this with Jermaine Jones many years ago. When you can see that little bit of contact, mm. it's it's likely going to be a red card, especially when it's slowed down. And I think that stands out to me because I feel like since – correct me if I'm wrong, and people are welcome to tweet or add in the discourse. I cannot remember a game against El Tree since like the Rafa Marquez days of it being sort of so openly petulant and so just like, screw this, I'm getting red, I don't care anymore. And I think a huge part of that is VAR, that VAR will catch all of those little things, and so you know you can't get away with it. And that stands out all the more to me that this was a game when knowing VAR was there, there was still just so much petulance to this game. I think it it speaks to the frustration, certainly, that El Tree were feeling, but then I think also to the U.S. not really being able to ratchet it down themselves. Uh, so some 
some tiny bit of frustration with Weston McKinney for that, more frustration with Sergio Dest because I would like to see him play against Canada. And I don't love the two of them not being able to go. My guess is that we're going to see Joe Scali. My guess is that we're going to see probably Luca De La Torre. Maybe we'll see some other permutations in there. Um, I like that you brought up the red card god, Rafa Marquez, because I literally yes. wrote in parentheses in my notes after Montez got the red card. Next Rafa, question mark. Oh, yeah. Which I know Cesar Montez as a player. He's like, not that. But that moment was so out of left field Ooh. of just like, it felt exactly like when Rafa Marquez kicked yep. Kobe Jones in the O2 mm-hmm. World Cup where you're like, this was just a brain fart. Yep. But then just Rafa the Marquez mist. did yeah. it three more times in yeah. this rivalry. And you're like, okay, well, that's that's his role. That's what he does now. Yeah. Um, I think the Miazga thing comes to mind, right? With the Diego Linus uh, and short. Yeah, 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 and yeah. also, in fairness, the 2021 Nations League final where like, everyone's kicking penalty kick spots and ripping up grass. And (laughs) it was like nine minutes off the ball of chaos. But I think part of what you said is right about VAR. I think part of it is 2019 was the last time Mexico won one of these games. And like COVID's a part of that. They didn't play till 2021, but this now is um, it's going to, it's five straight games where the U S is undefeated. It's four in competitive matches. So we're talking about, hmm. sorry, five, it's six matches, five of them competitive. We're talking about two Nations League now. We're talking about a Gold Cup final. We're talking about two World Cup qualifiers. And then that weird friendly that we just We did. all care a lot about. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah, super totally. important. <laughs> um, and so I think that's the other part of it is like you, you kind of can't do all the stuff mm-hmm. if it's not competitive. Yep. It just becomes pathetic and a little bit weird and – we are moving into new territory um, with this rivalry, and I thought it. Like, I feel I have I felt more confident about the U.S. coming into this game than I have ever felt Agreed. about a U.S.-Mexico Agreed. game. I was underconfident compared to the performance, which, again, not a C team for Mexico. That is just such a mind-blowing experience to have. And can I go into the next direction here? Yeah, only thing I wanted to add uh, in any, with everything you've said, because, again, I agree with all of it, uh, and I'm very excited to see where you take us, is just that I think you're dead on about Montez. I think I don't really know his game the way you do, but I will say that is Florin Balogun chasing him 30 yards, definitely hassling him. I don't think fouling him, but I've, I've been in that position where you know you're losing it. You're trying to hold on to it. You get bodied a little bit. And in that moment of like pure frustration, I've never, I've never gotten a red card in my career, but I get that feeling of like uh, something, this isn't fair. Something has to have, (laughs) there has to have been a foul. And I think sometimes that's the player stops and turns around and throws their hands up and yells at the ref. Sometimes, I don't know, maybe they walk away, and sometimes you sweep the legs. So I do think that was just the frustration of the moment combined with the frustration of that specific moment boiling over. I would love us to have a new Rafa Marquez. Uh, we always need a villain. But I just wanted to add that because I also think that was Balogun's biggest contribution, yeah. at least on first watch. Uh, so now, with that said, take us where you want to take us, David. Well, your first question that you asked me when mm-hmm. we previewed this game and well, coming into this one was, what, I'm, what was I watching for? Yeah. And I think the reality of BJ Callahan and the reality of a couple players missing was like it wasn't going to be massive tactical things because we don't know what lasts and what will matter. And we were texting a bit about I get frustrated with the like have to work harder, try harder. Mm-hmm. But what I was watching for is can the 2022 World Cup guys, the core, 
go to the next level. Mm-hmm. I have protected them for being young and inexperienced for four years. And I think they have overperformed throughout those four years. The next cycle now is can you control games? Can you take advantage? Can you be the aggressor? And while every space that Mexico gave the U.S., the U.S. took more than that. Mm -hmm. Every five yards Mexico gave the U.S., they took 10. And I think obviously with the goals, but with the play, Christian Pulisic is going to come up first. Of In my notes, it was a three-minute span where he picks up that ball that Anthony Robinson wins deep in the left corner and goes 65 yards on a run and tries to find Balogun, who mm-hmm. one of the issues is Balogun not making near post runs and second moves. And that's all stuff we'll get to as this goes along. And then obviously the, the moment right after where, again, he beats his man at midfield. It's a 45-yard run. He probably should have laid it off for Balogun. He doesn't. He shoots it over. And then he scores about 10 minutes later. But in that four or five minute span, it felt like some of the most dominant open field mm-hmm. play I have seen from Christian Pulisic in his U.S. career. And it was understanding where he can play. He comes inside so often, but understanding how much space there was on the outside, how he could affect the game. And it felt like from there, everyone else followed. Yep. And and you see Weston McKinney start to play quicker balls. You see Des be aggressive. You see Wea start to come inside or just beat his man whenever he wants. That was all of what I wanted to see, and I thought that moment spurred it, and this team overperformed what I'd hoped for. Yep. Uh, the, the the key moment in all that for me is the 25th minute. Uh, Pulisic has already made that run that you were talking about, uh, but in that one, he sort of is receiving the, the ball, his back to goal, he's out on the left-hand side for the U.S., and he just sort of faints to his left, just a little faint, and and it's uh, Sanchez again, fully bites on that so so very hard, and Pulisic turns the other way, and that's when Sanchez basically has to like like uh, grab his shirt, pull him back. I don't think that wasn't the foot tackle that happens later on, but in that moment, I think it was just Pulisic being like, "Oh, I can beat this dude every time," and that he was consistently in positions to have that, that isolation to then take on Sanchez and just make him look foolish. And then I think Mexico had to start doubling up and really paying attention to that, and that opened up gaps elsewhere. Really, really nice to see a confident and informed Christian Pulisic doing things and scoring goals, getting the brace on the evening. Uh, I think that's also a pretty solid way to start a second half, yeah. scoring inside of two minutes. Yeah, and and so the goal, we talked a little bit about the build-out for the mm-hmm. U.S. and what it looked like. And so they come out of halftime, and Weston McKinney's where he should be, which is in the higher channel where he can play on the half turn. And this is why Weston McKinney's special. His feel mm-hmm. for the game, I think, is unmatched. In the U.S. pool, he's not the cleanest player. He's not always making the right decision. But I think what Juventus fell in love with is he his soccer IQ and his feel for the game breaks the game open because he does things that are unexpected, but he doesn't do it in the same way that an average soccer player does. And so a lot of times it's like going in for a header on a ball that you probably should chest down, but he lays it along and that mm-hmm. creates a chance. Or it's making a run across the field rather than through the channel, which – You probably maybe wouldn't do, but it works for him, and he beats his first man and opens the game up. The pass is genius. I I think it's a first-time pass over his shoulder, right, for Timothy Weah. And then Weah understands that he has beaten his man every single time, and he doesn't try and go down the line. He curls himself inside, so he gets around the corner, and he plays that ball. And I mean, on the replay, you just see Pulisic's eyes light up the moment McKenney plays the ball through of, like, 
I can get there. Yep. And if I get there, I get a goal. Yep. And it was clearly worked on and talked about at halftime, mm-hmm. understood to perfection, executed to perfection. It's one of the better goals I think we've ever seen the U.S. score. It's it's pretty technically perfect across the board, starting with that ball from McKinney. Uh, I, I love one of my favorite like bits of commentary ever goes way back to, I think, either the 98 or 2000 season of D.C. United. Whoa. Marco Echeverry hits a ball through like six Chicago Fire players and the commentator drops. Uh, that ball had eyes. And I will always think of that whenever there's a ball like that and in this case McKinney hits that one through traffic it's a great vertical pass but it splits defenders it's into the path of Tim Weah it's perfectly in stride it is incredible ball but then Weah the first touch is exactly what that first touch needs to be it's ahead of the defender but it's carrying him inside so he can get in front and that way if there's a clip it's going to be a penalty or at the very least a foul and a yellow card so the defender has to kind of adjust their run and that buys Weah the time then to hit a perfect bending ball around the defender but it's the quarter of uncertainty it's between the defender and Ochoa Pulisic makes that run on the end I'm with you I thought that was a technically perfect goal so Christian Pulisic after that goal he's the fifth player in USMNT history to score over 20 competitive match goals and he's the fifth to score two goals in a game against Mexico that makes me very happy this game as a whole from him made me very happy I think it's the best I've seen him look that I can remember. I, I find him to be at times a really frustrating player when he's trying to do too much, when he's trying to take people on. I don't think his set piece delivery is particularly good. I think mostly it was Gio Reyna taking them tonight. Not that his was much better. In uh, that but... five minute span I talked about where he was great. He yeah. hit that set piece on the ground yep. to the yep. far post. That was just a wasted <laughs> chance. Yes. So, but I, I think tonight, it was it was just him feeling it and 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 getting a brace is no small feat but i thought everything else he did just making mexico uncomfortable making the defenders have to take chances and pick up cards and i think the way the us starts the game is the way they start that second half i think they expected a really aggressive start from mexico mexico press in the first 5 or 10 minutes and the us plays out of it and i think in the second half they anticipated that press anticipated mexico overcommitting numbers and playing a little bit too high and that's where that goal comes from so i think it's it's good adjustments and situational awareness from the united states uh we talked about pulisic there what what were your thoughts on Gio Reyna, both uh, operating centrally, but then also his overall game? Overall, I thought it was a really good game from him. Overall, Agreed. I thought he did some of the things that you need to earn yourself a center midfield spot. I thought he worked pretty hard off the ball. I thought he dropped in and found the game a little bit. I thought he helped defensively. It obviously wasn't a key part of this game because of the way Mexico played. but So I thought he did a lot of those things well. And I thought he dictated pretty well. One of my fears about playing Reyna in a central area like that is he is more of a dribbler. Mm-hmm. He is not a creator for others. Now, chances come from that because when you eliminate defenders and, and the other team has to scramble and you create spaces, like that causes chaos. But I thought he was really – I think he was intent about being a creator and a distributor in this game. Um, I thought early on he read – the space really well. I think it was two runs into the right channel mm-hmm. where Weya pulled out wide. Dest had rotated underneath uh, and they created their first two opportunities pretty much um, through that movement. So I thought his recognition of the space was good. I thought he was pretty clean on the ball, e- even in the build outs. Um, and he and Musa both, there are moments where you see the pass and they play a different one. 
and it opens up the game, whether it's across their hips, whether it's back where they came from, the moment you don't expect it. And those are going to be the moments where he's going to create chances. So I thought he was really good. I thought it was a good example of like what he can bring. I think with Weston McKinney out, he's definitely going to get another chance at center mid because there's not that many other pieces to rotate him out of there. And that's right. Like after a performance like this, you should start the next game in that position. Yep. I would agree with that. Uh, I'm sad we won't have Weston McKinney in there. Do you have any thoughts on who you would like to see as the other central midfielder? Because I'm guessing it will be uh, Reyna. I'm guessing it will be Yunus Musa, And then question mark. Yeah. So this goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago. I think it should be Johnny. Mm-hmm. I, I think Musa should be pushed a little higher. I think he should be given support. Canada wasn't maybe even as that. dominant I as that. I thought they'd be against Panama. But I was texting again with my Canada friends and like, Pretty sure Panama was a better team today than Mexico. It's like Canada, I think, was tested at a higher level in a different intensity zone, less of a crowd, less of an environment. Um, and so I don't think Canada winning 2-0 and us winning 3-0 is the biggest difference. But I I just look at that Canada midfield. Ustakio is probably the best center mid in the region. Ismael Kone special as well. I would just like to see a little bit more cover because I think for the U.S., they can create chances with Pulisic and with Wea and Reyna without needing hmm. more attacking support. Yeah. And I don't know how Delatore fits next to Musa and adds to the team. All right. You I, I'd be all right with with, with Johnny with 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 some Whoa. of those thoughts from you. You you've 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 kind of swayed me here because I wouldn't mind the more defensive approach there. Uh if it's Luca Delatore, I'm not going to be particularly upset. Do you care who starts at the number nine spot? Because Balagan obviously gets his debut. Great to have him. I do wonder how many times he was like, what have I signed up for? Oh, my God. What, what is happening? This is insane. Especially, Especially once he, he went out. out. Yeah. Exactly. I would assume he's sitting on the oh, bench yeah, and he's call, like, dude. what is happening? Everyone's real mad. Everyone's yeah. real, real mad right now. He, he's probably lucky we don't have to qualify for the World Cup. Like, this is the worst yep. experience he's going to have. He does not have to go to CONCACAF away games uh, anytime soon. I would That's start him point. again. I Agreed. It wasn't Agreed. great, but... Okay, so then give me your reason. I, I think because, uh, I mean, Pepe comes in and scores, but I think too often there's an inclination, I'll speak for myself, to be like, oh, that guy scored? Well, he should be starting. And I did see that prevailing narrative of like, see, this is why Pepe should have been the starter all along. I don't agree with that. But I do think Balogun coming in has been the, if you're Pepe and you feel chagrined or you feel slighted maybe being left off that roster, I do feel like he's kind of gotten his head around that one, is back and playing well. But I think that is lighting a fire under him a little bit, and I was excited to see him score. I don't want to then be like, okay, now it's Pepe. We'll see what happens. I, I think Balogun, I'm excited to to do the rewatch because I, I am operating on the assumption that, number one, I liked I did like what I saw from him in terms of pressing and defending from the front. Uh, and then, obviously, the, like the harassing run to draw that red card. I am... On the rewatch, I want to pay attention to his movement. For example, that second goal. I have no idea where he is in that play. He's but, but he's I'm not, about a step and a half behind Pulisic, mm-hmm. a little closer to the near post, but he's not he, he's not in the right spot to score. Okay, so this is my question because I wasn't sure if it was is he taking defenders away to open up space for that McKinney ball in and then he's peeling around, or is it just that he's not as alert to the situation as Pulisic? Yeah. And and so sounds like you you have made your ruling there. I look forward to that rewatch, but I would like to see him just given another opportunity to start. 
your first ever start for the United States in a competitive or like not even a competitive game, but this was a competitive game against Mexico with an 80-20 fan split, I would say, yeah. in favor of Mexico. That's a pretty intimidating atmosphere. Um, and I think he also had to do, at least in the first half, more stuff that I don't think is his strong suit. I don't think back-to-goal hold-up play is necessarily why he's been brought into this team. And so I feel like some of what he was having to do in the first half before the U.S. kind of found that rhythm wasn't maybe what's going to make him look like a best, a better player for the United States long-term. I will say, going back to the negative for a moment, that in that period you talk about with Pulisic, that five-minute period, Balogun is in there, and he is around, and he is involved. But the first goal is Pulisic being alive to an opportunity and alive to a mistake from Mexico. Uh, I forget which defender it is. I have it in my notes. But my notes, as David can attest, are lengthy. Uh, it's it's, <laughs> and very it's an Alvarez with Thank the you. pass back at Sanchez. Thank you. Okay. Um, I didn't want to just keep blaming Sanchez without being sure. But yeah, oh, it's, don't it's worry. A They're all terrible. <laughs> you, you can't. It's kind of one of those where if you miss, you still hit water. All right. That's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's Pulisic alive to it and, and making that goal happen. I think the same for the, the chance that you talked about uh, that ends up going over the bar. I don't feel like Balogun was as electric and sort of like ready to attack ready to pounce on pounce on things and so i would just like to see him i'm not saying he like earned the start yeah. or i saw a thing that's like that's what we've been missing i think it's more of a like okay that was fine but what can you do in the championship and if the answer is more of the same then i think it is back to a battle of who should be the number nine but i don't want to just say well one of them scored and one of them didn't so it's the one who did he's never played with this group before and actually on pulisic's first goal um, it's Serginho Dest out wide right. Wea comes inside into a, a nice gap right on the top of the 18. Balogun's directly behind Wea. He made the same run as him. And it's just, they never played together before. Like, and there was a couple moments where he was in a good spot. Someone else was already there. And it was clear he had no relationship with these players because this is his first ever game. You add in, as you mm-hmm. said, the competitive nature and the high intensity. So he wasn't good. The odds of him being great were pretty low. It would have been nice if Pulisic mm-hmm. lays that ball off and he gets a goal. Um, you can't go off 65 minutes yeah. and say it's not his spot. And Pepe's had time to try and win it. And none of this is to win Nations League final. Mm-hmm. Like, all of this is to win the 2026 World Cup or the 2030 yeah. World Cup. Mm-hmm. And the build towards that is like, everyone will get more opportunities. Everyone will get more time. He's earned this in his play with his club. It's part of, I'm sure, the conversation of bringing him in. And, like, if you're an intelligent coach. This is me nodding, by the way. Nodding along. Yep. And Mm -hmm. if you're an intelligent coach, like, why would you kill his confidence like 10 seconds in? That, dude, that. That's the thing. Is like, if, if you have been courting this player, you've gotten him to commit, he's playing for the United States. There is no better way to destroy that confidence and that sort of bond that's been created than to be fully, what have you done for me lately? And, oh, never mind, this kid's now starting and you're on the bench. You better score when you come on. I think it sends very much the wrong message. I'm sure people will disagree on the competitive spirit grounds, but I don't care because I think you're absolutely right. We are building towards 2026. That's what it's all about. So you don't shoot yourself in the foot from the jump. You give him the opportunity to see what he can do this game, and then we'll keep seeing him get starts, I'm sure. Sure, we'll see other players brought in, but I, I, I hope they stick with Balogun for that next game. 
Okay, I've taken a moment to breathe after my extended Balagan monologue. Uh, Goss, any other individuals in this quick take hot take that is probably going to end up being very, very long? Uh, any other individuals you think we should spotlight? We've talked a little bit about Wea so far, a little bit about Jedi, not a ton about him. Maybe the center backs. Where would you like to go? I'd say Chris Richards. Okay. Because he was a little bit of a surprise to me, as I just said, 2026, 2030. Like, he's one... He is a massive part of that. So I understand getting him a start when you can. Tim Ream's obviously not available, so the pool is a little bit different. Actually, there's like 18 center backs who are not available. So I understood him starting, but I didn't anticipate it because he hasn't been playing for Crystal Palace. And we have seen players in this exact game, I think back to Mark McKenzie two years ago, of not any experience at this level against this opposition and rust coming out of club soccer and not being ready for the moment. And I thought he was perfect in this game. I thought there was a couple times where he had to come over and emergency defend. He did it easily. I thought he read plays early, so he was over to cover in space behind Jedi before it was even an emergency defending moment. Cleaned it up, picked up the ball. I thought he was confident in possession. And there are holes in Miles Robinson's game in possession. Like If you're going to be his partner, you need to be able to carry some of the load there, especially in games where now Weston McKinney won't be available. And do your center mids have confidence in those moments? And how much are you, is your team going to start looking to you to help build out of the back and build out of pressure? And so I just thought this was a great night for Chris Richards. And this is something at a minimum he can lean back on in his future. If he's not playing club soccer and he gets called in for a big USMNT game, it's, well, I've done this before. And I know that I can step up to this moment. Oh. <sighs> I like having center backs who are fun and good and athletic. It's all it's all very nice. I love having fullbacks who are very good, especially going forward. I thought Dest uh, did a number of Serginho Dest things, <laughs> including maybe losing his mind for a moment and getting a red card. But you mentioned the sort of underlap that he kept providing with that Reyna and Wea overload on the right. I really liked that. I love that, that uh, combination of the three. And I thought Anthony Robinson again, continued to do the things we've seen him do, which is be one of the better players for the United States. I thought he was he was good at attack. I thought he got forward well. And I thought both he and Dest did a really good job, especially early on, of finding the balance in their position of where to be to be able to step to the wingbacks, but then still have wide attackers as they came into their space covered. I think Mexico were very much trying to target pull the U.S. fullbacks forward, and then hit that gap behind the fullbacks where the center backs can't close quickly. I think they almost pulled it off once in the opener. Short of that, uh, it felt like the United States got that right. So credit to those two fullbacks for having their positioning more or less dead on every time. So do we just celebrate B.J. Callahan now? Most successful manager in USMNT history? Dude, let's talk about that for a second. Because I had a number of people text me like, why do we need Greg Berhalter back? We're going to talk about that. We've got this random guy in there who's who's like, they look better without Berhalter. And my argument remains, this is more or less the Berhalter squad. Like, there's been a few additions. There are players that I think he left off the roster with some justification. You could quibble with a few of them. But I think... Overall, this is his formation that he has played. I think there was a lot of Burhalter in the way this team set up and the way they attacked. I think the way they defended as well. So to me, it's sort of interim managers doing the interim thing of continuing what was working, maybe trying to fidget a little bit with what wasn't. But overall, it felt to me like a very Greg Burhalter team. Uh, how say you, David Gus? I completely agree with you. I think it's probably something that's going to be in favor of 
your argument coming up in a couple minutes about Greg Verhalter's future with the U.S. men's national team. Um, and I think it's a credit to him that this team, maybe without the most experienced voice of putting together a full game plan and a game model and preparing for an opponent, were capable of playing at the same level that they have over the last two years, sort of on their own. And that's actually not probably the worst moment for these players of like, Having that responsibility and having to sort of carry a bit of the load, one part of the Greg Berhalter system over the last year that I don't like, that I didn't like again today was set pieces. We've just been bad on set pieces for a while now, and it's going to hurt us at some point, and it's just a facet of the game. Forget the whole, like, oh, the U.S. defends hard and wins set pieces. Like, it's just a facet of the game you should start winning more often. Um, But besides that, I completely agree with you with the way the game played, the rotations that we saw both in and out of possession, the decisions of how much to press and when and where to press. And I think the mentality of the team, which has become this like cohesive group, us against yep. everything else and sort of stand, uh, even going back to the West Wing stuff, like standing up for each other and these young players taking responsibility on their shoulders and being leaders. Um, you look at the players on the field and what, Matt Turner is, 28 and i guess you have miles robinson's like 26 <laughs> everyone else like a child Are you searching for veterans you're yeah. searching for that veteran now but none experience? of but, but it didn't feel like that uh-uh. right it felt no. like a team that had expectations that sort of there was a f- going to be a floor to their performance and that's one of the fears with young teams like it could all fall apart for 25 minutes it didn't feel like that team at all and i Again, I, I think that's sort of what we've seen over the last two years. Man. Still still frustrated by those two red cards. I think short of that, it would have been a very yeah, comprehensively... I'm calling it a veteran performance. Do you guys get red cards for after the play stuff? I, I, again, I think, you're, I think you're dead on about McKinney. I really... I don't love like retaliation. I don't love players getting in the ref's face. I know at the same time it's something that I do when I feel like I've been fouled and the call hasn't gone my way or when I don't think I fouled somebody and the call doesn't go my way. I, I get it. I get defending your teammate in the moment. I think it's it's a you can quit you could say he shouldn't have gotten involved with McKinney, and I would understand that. I still think I agree with you. Get in there. Scrap it up. Whatever. We'll see what happens. The uh, desk one again is still more frustrated by go ahead. The Weston McKinney torn jersey is gonna yeah. go on oh, to the, the, the badge. Yeah, the badge? it's Come gonna go into the mural of yeah, you know, sure. Brian McBride, bloody eye, the Gooch stare down on Borgetti. Like these are the moments we built this whole thing on. Um, the Benny Failhaber goal at the yep. Gold Cup, like that's now one of them. It had it had strong fu energy as he was kissing the badge to the to the booing crowd. Like you like that? You yeah. like that? He that should have. Was- torn the jersey apart but yeah he was close oh that would have been yeah go full hulk captain america whatever style i'm fine with that one uh question i saw on twitter for us uh david can we win against canada without destin mckinney we've talked about likely replacements for mckinney assumption would be joe scally will start for Sergio dest i'm still inclined to say the united states can absolutely win it's going to be i think a tricky game i think you're dead on that I think Panama were maybe a tougher challenge for Canada on the evening. So if the United States comes in really confident in their abilities and Canada comes in confident but also ready to scrap, I could see it uh, going Canada's way. I think I could also see it going the U.S.'s way. So I think this one is pretty balanced, but I think the United States absolutely can win without those two players. A 100% agree with you. Um, uh, 
I think even more equal to those players being out is I think the issue is going to be this was a final for the U.S. Yeah. where Canada like brought Alfonso Davies off the bench, managing a two-game tournament to win a championship. And so I think the psychological, physical, emotional, like all of that, I think is going to be a lot tougher for the U.S. to go into what will probably be a slightly empty building mm-hmm. on Sunday. It's not like Canada yeah. fans are going to show up. And <laughs> I assume a lot of the tickets were already sold to Mexico fans who maybe will go to the third place game or maybe won't. And it's just going to be a whole different experience and vibe. Uh, but from a soccer point of view, like 100%, there's no world in which those two losses are not enough for the U.S. to win. It's going to be a little bit of a different challenge. I, I do think the U.S. will probably sit in a little bit more and, this is a Canada team, as you saw in the Panama game, like they score more goals in transitional moments with guys like Kyle Lahren and Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies can sort of be on the move already when they pick up the ball. If you can eliminate those moments, I think it makes it tough for them to score. And you trust a Christian Pulisic, a Timothy Weah, Reina, Balogun, Pepe against a Steven Vittoria, a Sam Atacube, and Alistair Johnson 1v1. Those are all really good players. Those are all players who have now shown over the last two years that they are elite CONCACAF players. But on the nature of things, like you just have to believe that your players can win some of those 50-50 moments and create chances. The burning question then for you, Mr. Goss, who is the coach on the sidelines for the United States uh, for that final on Sunday? That's not a burning question for me. I'm not the (laughs) one making those decisions. I'm not a part of that, and I cannot believe any of what's happened over the last three hours. It's it's a very confusing thing, uh, because I believe that we weren't going to get an announcement until after the Gold Cup. Mm -hmm. That felt like the sort of timeline that had been established. I didn't think the U.S. would really try to rush at the same time. I have felt for a good long while like it was going to be Greg Berhalter reappointed. And it started to feel to me like if that's going to be the case, why are we still messing around? Let's just get it done. And here we are. They got it done. I think I messaged the Discord last night saying like, if it's going to be him, let's just do it. Let's just focus on 2026 instead of effing around. And they done did it, it seems. Uh, I really, with that in mind, did not enjoy CBS's halftime coverage of this conversation, including talking about, like, do the players know in the locker room? I I personally think they probably did. I feel like they probably knew ahead of time, but I also think it doesn't really matter. I think if you're going to have this conversation, having clear ideas, this is about to be very ironic if I don't have clear ideas, (laughs) but it just, it felt to me like it it was a conversation they either were not prepared to have or didn't feel like they could have openly and honestly. And so instead, we got a lot of sort of talking around it, and we got a lot of misinformation, starting with Clint Dempsey saying, if you fired this guy, why are you bringing him back? That doesn't make any sense. And I had a ton of people um, uh, in my mentions saying, Clint's right. Clint's Clint's speaking facts. Like, if yeah, why bring him back? You fired him. This is stupid. U.S. soccer is so dumb. And I think the key thing to remember is they didn't fire him. Uh, His contract expired. Should we go into the timeline now? How how much do you want me to go, David? You can, as long as you're speaking facts and correcting okay. everything else, you can do as much as you want. All right. Tell, jump in whenever there's something you disagree with or would like to add to. But my assumption, some of this being rooted in facts as I understand them, some of it being just sort of my connecting of dots, is that Berhalter was going to be renewed after the World Cup. I think he he met a lot of the 
performance requirements that U.S. soccer had, uh, I think. And then you look at his uh, resume when it came to Nations League and Gold Cup, World Cup qualification, maybe some stumbles along the way. We talked about those at the time. You could be frustrated with the way the game against the Netherlands went. I get that. And that is my kind of lingering criticism of him. We could have that conversation too. But I think he was going to be renewed. I think then whether or not that renewal was the reason it happened, but then the Reinas come forth with the allegations of domestic violence. They report them to Ernie Stewart, or she, Danielle Reina texts them to Ernie Stewart. And I think he, at that point, recognizes we cannot renew this person if these allegations are there. And if we don't make them public, if we don't have an investigation, we know how this is going to look. So I think they're at an impasse because I think he's going to be renewed before that contract expired at the end of December. But now you can't. So they open the investigation. They make that public. They don't renew Burhalter, So his contract expires. And Burhalter has basically, I think, been waiting there for the investigation to be concluded, which it now has been, and found basically no wrongdoing. Um, and I do think people are being very disingenuous with the way that they're approaching that. And I think it's sort of uh, kind of gross that people are making this into like, Burhalter beats his wife and now he gets to coach the U.S. again. I, I think that's definitely deliberately misconstruing the facts, at least as that report has them. Uh, so that aside, I think then it's basically U.S. soccer. I don't know if they did a ton of uh, interviews. I think the, um, the reporting I saw was like they had talked to 10 different people at various points. Who knows how serious those conversations were, but I think they were going to reappoint Burhalter. They needed to get the investigation done, and now they've reappointed him. That is sort of where I stand on that one. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, I think you're right about a lot of it, and I don't think we'll ever really know about a lot of it. Um, I don't know if they were going to hire him coming out of the World Cup, whether the Reina stuff happened or not. Um, I, my feeling right now, so I actually don't know, and I guess people when they listen to this might know more than us, because mm -hmm. a lot of the details will come out. I wouldn't be shocked if the contract isn't through the 2026 World Cup. I wouldn't be shocked if it's basically like he's an interim. You think? I think there's a chance where it's like Crocker just came in. You don't have qualifying. Okay, here's Anthony Hudson's gone. Like BJ Callahan's the coach right now. We aren't where we want to be in this process. You don't have a job, clearly. Like... Do you want to do this? And is it through Copa America? Is it through the end of this year? If those were the case, one, I would feel better about this. Why? I don't believe in having a coach for two cycles of a okay. World Cup for a standard country going through standard soccer stuff. If mm -hmm. it's the coach of Guam, who's the first one to ever get players to come and he's building a program, that's different. If it's Bielsa and he tells you it takes seven years, that's different. I think it takes time to build a program. And if you don't decide at the end of one World Cup that it's not this guy and you fire them, you end up in a Jurgen Klinsmann situation of now we're midway through the next cycle. The next guy doesn't have enough time to build the next system. So that's always been my stance from the moment Greg Berhalter got the job till now. And nothing about Greg Berhalter changes that. I think he's a great manager. I think he's super intelligent. I think he definitely understood that he was overdoing it and pulled it back a little bit. And he got the players to play with grit and fight and all that stuff, which 
isn't exactly his DNA of like where he starts thinking about the game. Mm-hmm. But I think he did a really good job building that. Clearly, the players like playing for him. Like I said yep. five minutes ago, I think today is actually a testament to him. And there's a lot of people, let's call them trolls, who will say that it's the opposite. It proves he's not relevant. But as you said, this was his game style. This was his game model. This was his culture that was built, that was carried out even without him. That's how strongly he built it. But I don't think the same voice trying to work with the same players over the next set of time is what's necessary to take a team to the next level. I can understand that. I personally feel two things. The first is that if you are just going to give him two years to like the end of Copa America, uh, I don't know. That feels like a little bit of a half measure to me. That feels like uh, people are going to be annoyed that we appointed him. But if we only do two years, that it's not the full four-year cycle. So we're not just – it doesn't feel uh, like anything other than like fan service so people don't get mad. And that's how you get bad Star Wars. Uh, in my opinion, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's worth renewing him for four years if – and here would be my big if – if you actually did interviews and if you actually sat down with him again and found out what he learned and what he plans to do differently. Because I think there are plenty of things we can get into. The major one for me is that I don't think he changes games when the U.S. is down. I don't think he changes games when the United States is struggling to create. I don't think that's where he shines. I think his substitutions are sometimes confusing. I think his tactics oftentimes don't adjust to exploit opportunities. I think sometimes they even play into opposition hands. And that is something where my hope would be that if you have the experience and familiarity with the player group that he does and knows how to get the best out of them, that then the next step is, okay, how do I evolve my managerial abilities? How do I evolve these wrinkles in my game that need to be ironed out? And my hope would be that that is part of the interview process. What are you going to do differently? How are you going to affect change such that we can go further, that we can develop this squad more? And I guess I'm choosing to believe that that's a thing that was talked about and that's the thing that he's bringing to this because I would absolutely agree with you that if it's four more years of the same, I think that was good enough to get us through 2022. I don't think treading water, especially with the game we just saw the United States play, is the way to move things on towards 2026. I think there does have to be an evolution. I think I am trusting that Greg Berhalter can continue that evolution uh, stylistically in the team with the buy-in that I think he largely has. I think the Reina stuff and to some extent the Scally stuff, interesting that they were both bleach blonde for yeah, this one. Right. I felt like, is there a connection there? Yeah, uh, Joe Scally's putting his flag in the ground saying, I stand with my boy. It does kind of feel We've known each way, other right? since we were 13. Like, yep. if anyone has... Get, we're pretty sure Scally got called into the last camp just to be roommates with Gia. There we go. Someone's got to. Uh, it can't just be Claudio. So uh, I, I do... I do think that like that is probably going to blow over if it hasn't already. Uh, that would be my hope, at least. So I, I don't really get into like it's a toxic atmosphere that CBS were worried about, no. and how do you have Geo around? I think so first of you all, already have him around. Well, for starters, on that, this is Geo's problem. I don't think it's mm-hmm. the team's problem. From everything we understand, the team wanted Greg Berhalter to push Geo out of the team, yep. and he basically fought to keep him in. Yep. But this is all that all of that is Geo's issue. That is not yeah. the team problem. That is not a toxic issue inside of the team. I think using the word toxic in all of this is actually a mistake by itself because it puts it into a realm that's different in the way we use that word in our mm-hmm. vernacular in popular culture right now. Um, and all of that is Geo Reina's problem. And like 
as a national team, you want Gio Reyna at his best. You want to work with him. You do not decide a coach because Gio Reyna and his family doesn't like them. And I think, in a way, you've heard from Christian Pulisic and other people that they don't even they, – they would probably be offended if that was the reason that Greg Berhalter wasn't brought back. Now, mm-hmm. you go into the investigation stuff and all of that, and um, going back to what you said before, I think part of – for Ernie Stewart, the process is like what we've seen across NWSL and – women's national team, there is now a process in place that they had to follow, that you mm-hmm. should follow. Like That's what organizations Absolutely. should yeah. do. U.S. soccer has been behind as an organization, and they still are. I don't know how much of an interview process was done, because I think the in- investigation carried so much time. And I don't think we're ever going to know, by the way. I think that's going to be something, that's what's going to be most frustrating to me, and I think also does sort of give you the answer if the answers to who was interviewed, what was the process, are very vague or very, we had 10 candidates, we shortened it to three, we did some interviews, we stuck with Greg. I think that might be the level of clarity we're going to get, and I think that tells you how much of an intensive search there actually was. Yeah, and the people who would carry out that search left in the middle of the investigation, (laughs) and the people who are brought in to carry the process over now have not really been there. So like, Including Matt Crocker being like, this is my first time talking to a lot of these guys right. this week. It's like, huh. Which How is, involved were you in the search? Just out of curiosity? So again, this just comes back to my Copa America's one year away. Yeah. That is where I do think there's a chance that it, this is short term and all of this is a mess. Like all of this is bad. All of this sets the program back. All of this sets the team back. But it is about mitigating it now on the fly. Like the plane's in the air. You can't go back in time. This, no matter what happens, most likely in 2026, will have said this was wasted opportunity to like have all this huh. time with a coach. Yeah, yeah, I have said many times about Jesse Marsh, and everyone asks, "Can you play a high pressing style in the international game?" I don't know, but having a four year ramp up with no meaningful games like qualifiers where you have to adjust your tactics is the closest you're ever going to find out to hmm. can I get a cohesive team to play in this system. In, at the international level. Um, there are other names out there, by the way, that I've heard that I think are interesting as well that are realistic um, to some of the point CBS, I think, <laughs> was attempting to make at halftime of like, and I think Paul Tenorio has stated this most clearly of like, the U.S. cannot spend like Real Madrid for a coach. Yeah, There are different, and I, I don't know that people totally grasp that, but there are names below Zidane that exist yeah. um, that are interesting. I don't know how much of any of that was explored properly. And so I'm willing to accept, okay, Greg Berhalter can do the job while we do explore all of that. And maybe it will be the answer that he is the the guy for the next, for the full cycle after Matt Crocker has time to establish himself and work on this answer. But if it's right now that Berhalter is the guy through the World Cup, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a mistake. And I think it's, I think it's doubling down on mm-hmm. issues that the Federation is trying to work their way out of that they've had for the last, I can't count how long, but let's safely say seven years. No, sorry, 10 years. You swayed me a little bit, not going <laughs> to lie. Because That's how you know it's late at night. No, no, I mean, you're making points because, okay, here is me saying a thing that is completely my own speculation. This is not I like... I promise I'm not like protesting too much. I have not heard this anywhere other than just what I'm inclined to believe. 
I have sort of felt like Matt Crocker was brought in and told Greg Berhalter is going to be your manager. And that was part of maybe him taking the job. I Again, I have no idea if that's true. But if you were going to renew him, which I think they were, not saying they were definitely, but I think they were, then I think there's an idea of we were going to renew him. If he's cleared from this investigation, there's no reason not to, like nothing has changed that. So mm-hmm. we're sticking with that. Yeah. And if that is the case, or even an approximation of the case, I could see accepting that if you're Crocker, if the idea is, look, we're giving him two years, not four years. We're going to give him through Copa America. You can evaluate. You can have conversations. It should be one year, by the way, I think. We'll give him the one year to get through Copa America. We would have given him the two years. Uh, but that then you can – because he said himself, like, he hasn't done enough to learn Spanish and talk to Spanish language, uh, like, side of the game in the United States and hasn't talked to the players. And, and I think there's a possibility that Matt Crocker will then take that time to get a firmer understanding of things, all the while evaluating Greg Berhalter, uh, if and when he takes over, when he takes over. And then if, let's say, it blows up at the Copa America and the U.S. crashes out of the group stage and looks completely unconvincing, that would be the time where I think maybe you're not renewing or you are not exercising the option, is what my guess would be. It's like a, a, a one-sided option that could be triggered. That would all then make sense to me if you're sort of like, okay, we're going to give him time to figure some things out more. The question could then be asked, didn't he have that time during the interview process? But maybe maybe that wasn't what they were trying to do with the interview. Maybe it was just about finding the right person. Who knows? But I could then see it being a, we've ch- structured the contract so that we have the ability to trigger the option uh, and that we have then more time to keep working and making sure this is the right choice. So I, I think that makes sense. And also we should mention like Matt Crocker's role is more than just running the U.S. men's national team. Yep. So 100%. that's also part of this is like, he has to do a lot of things. Um, the one other thing I want to bring up, because I, I think the conversation we're having, like I, there should be a debate about whether or not Greg Berhalter should be coach. Mm-hmm. I think 97% of what we're going to hear about it is garbage. Yep, It's just meaningless things that are said or have no basis in truth. But inside of the debate, one of the concerns, and I think it's a concern with national teams, is having your guys. And like, Christian Pulisic, we're going to celebrate. He is an elite talent. But there are like seven positions that if they're healthy, they're starters. And I don't know that that's the healthiest way to have a national team. And the longer you have a manager, I think the more established those guys are. Because it's one, I trust you. You've been there for me before. I've been there for you before. And... I think it was an issue for Klinsman amongst many other issues. I think it was an issue for Yogi Love. Yep. Like, I think it's been an issue for many managers. Luis Aragones, I think it's been an issue for many managers who stay on too long with national teams, which is... And, and just quickly, the flip side of that is also the case that, not saying this would happen with Reyna, but we've also seen managers then who stay on for that second cycle burn bridges with certain right. players or the per- player frustrates that manager. And so now they're out. Whereas with a new cycle, they would have been back in and maybe key contributors. So it can yeah. work both ways. There. Yeah. The national team is different than clubs. You don't train with them every day. You don't have a ton of games to give guys chances when you don't believe in them for them to earn their way back in. And so it can get set very quickly. And I don't think that's a healthy way for a team to be built. And I don't think it's how this, I don't think it's where this team stands right now. I don't think this team is set in stone. Mm -hmm. And so I worry having him as a manager for that next cycle, 
do you start to put up roadblocks for whether it's dual nationals that you're trying to convince or young players who might be good enough or players who will emerge because it's the U.S. They'll emerge later in their careers because we don't have a perfect system built and guys develop later and that's always going to continue to happen. And so I, that's one of my actual concerns about this. I don't know if this is the fair question, genuinely. Are there any players that you think are more likely to be that problem player who maybe get a little too complacent? Because I think to your point, you look at this squad and like, if I'm picking it regardless of the manager, if you're going with a 4-3-3, I think when everybody's healthy, the midfield three pretty much picks itself. I think it's way on the right. I think it's Pulisic on the left. I think now maybe it's a confusing thing of where does Reina fit if you have everybody healthy? Because I think there's a chance he is one of your midfield starters. Still have... The question mark around the number nine for now, though Balogun seems penciled in. Uh, I would say Jedi is your left back. Dest is your right back. Matt Turner is your goalkeeper. We'll keep figuring out the center backs. But I don't really see any places where it's like, ah, he does kind of keep favoring that guy and he shouldn't. So is there any area of concern for you? Or is it more about what happens if those players get complacent a year or two from now when he's calling them in every time regardless of form? Yeah, I, I think the worry is and we're going to see it this summer, if you're Christian Pulisic and you say, mm-hmm. I should play at Chelsea, but either way, I'm going to start and be the captain mm-hmm. of the U.S. Or if you're Weston McKinney and the question is, how do you challenge yourself next? Where do you go after yeah. Leeds? Uh, these are my decisions. But either way, I'm going to start for the U.S. Chris Richards, Serginio Dest. I think that's the concern for me is like, are you creating a space where these players are like, I have this avenue to be successful, do the thing I want to do. I'm going to start at a home World Cup if I'm healthy versus I need to push myself. And I think you even mentioned it at this point an hour ago with Ricardo Pepe yeah. of like, Balogun gets the start. I got left off the World Cup team. I'm coming in. I'm scrapping off the bench. I'm going to Gron again. Is PSV the right move for me? I'm not just going back to Augsburg where I'm making the guaranteed money. Like, maybe the next contract for Ricardo Pepe isn't at the same number, but it's to get playing time and challenge himself and get on the field. And this is just the nature of national teams. It's like you're sort of pseudo-managing guys from three steps away because you don't control their careers. You don't get to play with them every single day. You don't get to build a system to perfection that they fit into. That's where That's where that worries me, is like you have a lot of players that we like. And a lot of players that we think are good. And this is part of the like crazy eagle emojis on Twitter type thing is like Weston <laughs> McKinney plays for Juve and, you know, Pulisic. So we're a World Cup winning team. A lot of these guys don't play or have not over the last year consistently or the ones that have are playing for teams that got relegated. And so like there are a lot of questions coming up for these guys individually. And while I like that they have a place in the U.S with the U S men's national team to be confident and comfortable. And like, I like the environment that's being built. It feels like the team I grew up with of like, it was a group that people could come into and there was a core. You still want to challenge those players and you don't want them to assume they have those spots. And how does that affect their club decisions? I think is going to be major. And I think it changes with, well, we're, you know, I'm his guy. He's my guy. Like I'm there for him. He's there for me. (sighs) So a concerned end to a confusing night of soccer? It was. I Someone just sent me the tweet of like only the USMNT fan base could. Here, here's the tweet. 
USMNT fans watch their team demolish their biggest rivals to the point that their entire team and fan base becomes unhinged and they can't even enjoy it because they're bringing back a coach who has been really successful. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's think, where we sit right now. I think it's just that, like, <laughs> there are very few people who are like, Burhalter's the guy. Like, that. this is my dude. He is the right choice. Weirdly, I think, Jermaine Jones is well, one I of liked, them. Which I liked. I liked that a lot. <laughs> I didn't expect it. But, like, I, I think that's the problem is that, and we've talked about this previously, that if you are pro Burhalter should have the job, you're probably like, yeah, he did fine. We'll, we'll see what happens right. next. You're yeah, like, you're yeah, not I think in he, love he did good it. enough. Exactly. And I think the opposite side of that is so much stronger and so much yeah. more... Uh, with volume <laughs> so that I think it it sort of skews things a little bit. So let's remove that for a moment and just say uh, we should remember Trey Sacero is uh, is more fun than Dos Sacero and is definitely more fun than losing. And and ending at the same point we started, which is this team's back. Mm-hmm. And like the World Cup was massive. I had a ton of confidence. World Cup qualifying, uh, a fun is a hard word to use with such tension, but like it felt real. Um, I was proud of a lot of what we saw, but the performance today with the expectation of that performance to me was the first moment in a really long time where this feels like the team that you can support. And whether Burhalter's the manager or not, I think this team is back. I think this mm-hmm. team is sort of at the level the U.S. men's national team should be at with the ability to strive higher. But they're back at that level consistently where over the last four years they've been there, but they've also been below. And before that, they were just below for Mm -hmm. four years. (laughs) And so I think that's the thing we should take first, no matter who the manager is, because those players, that performance is that ability. That's not going to go anywhere. The only other thing, since we have made this quick take hot take into over an hour, the only other thing that is worth uh, talking about. Uh, from this game was the resurgence of the chant, the game being ended prematurely, even though CONCACAF has now come out and said the game wasn't abandoned, even though it was called four minutes before the mandatory amount of uh, extra time or stoppage time. Regardless of that, I don't want to really get into that now. Joe and I will get into it more tomorrow because, number one, Joe was there, so can talk a little bit more about the stadium experience itself, but also because having just criticized CBS for not having their facts right and not having all the information before speaking on a thing, I do not want to get the facts wrong when it comes to what the protocol actually is and how it was followed and what the reports are on how it was followed. So that's something that we'll go over in much more uh, depth on tomorrow's review episode. For now, David, talking to you for over an hour was was a very fun way to end my evening slash begin my day. It's now past 1.30 in the morning on the East Coast, but uh, a credit to you for staying up and talking it all out with me. We had zero notes very few notes for this one in terms of shared notes for what we we're going to talk about but we found a way and not only did we find a way but goss managed to find a way to record while sitting on a believe a tiny chair yeah i am <laughs> ready for my tea party i am sitting in my niece's who is two years old basement space she's going to come down here and cook peanuts on the fake stove next to me tomorrow and uh we got it done the only thing that ruins this for me is i was going to listen to this pod on my drive home uh, tomorrow so i'm uh, probably not going to do that anymore <laughs> so you, <laughs> you and joe yourself so you no that's never going to happen so you and joe should yeah. record as early as possible so that i can uh so tell that to the man on the somewhat west coast i don't know if nevada is two or three hours behind i'm assuming three based on the 10 p.m kickoff but who knows conca baby 
CONCACAF, baby. Man, what a game. Four red cards, three goals. Uh, a lot of happiness uh, for me in this one, uh, and a lot of, I'm going to guess, outrage on Twitter. David Goss, thank you again for talking about so many different things this evening. David, salutes. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Enjoy your tea party, my friend. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again later today. I'm going to go sleep. <laughs>